Let us pray. God of us all, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. This week, I've been, uh, I've been thinking about um, perfect moments in life. Because that's really what happens in this reading today from Luke 9, is that Peter, James, and John on this Mount of Transfiguration experience a perfect moment. And uh, I've lived long enough now, I'm in my 60s, 61, that I can look back and see a whole series of these moments in my life. They're those moments that, that when they happened, I knew I'd never forget them. And uh, whether you've lived into your 60s or not, I hope you've experienced some of those moments too. Those moments when life is, it's, it's like exactly the way that it's, it's meant to be, the way it's supposed to be. And there's like a clarity and there's an purity. It's almost like even for a fleeting second, heaven and earth have met. They're, they're winsome, beautiful, holy moments. And uh, in my experience, sometimes they're, they're, they're very religious moments. They're always spiritual, but sometimes they're very religious uh, moments. I remember Christmas Eve several years back, uh, we gathered, Christmas Eve is always a beautiful service. It was a service of lessons and carols. And uh, that night the, the sanctuary was packed. And one of the carols we sang that night was uh, the first Noel, which is always one of my favorites. And um, you, you know, the, the, the refrain in that song where we sing Noel, Noel, Noel. And, and that night, there was a moment where, where the tenors just kind of took off and their voices just kept rising as if to the heavens. And, and it was like listening to the voice of angels. And in that moment, it's like all of the wonder, all of the joy, all of the hope of Christ's birth was present right then. It was perfect. Some of the moments are very personal. You know, I, I remember my wedding day. I remember the day Molly and I got married. It was uh, August 26, 1989. It was at a church in Pasadena, California. And um, the service had begun. You know, all of our family were down front. All of our friends were down front. My brother and I were in the back. And, uh, and the moment came, and I turned and looked at him, and we smiled. And, and we started around that back pew, started down the aisle, started toward future that I could not imagine. But in that moment, I knew it was a future that I couldn't wait to begin. It was perfect, and I've never forgotten. Often, though, uh, for me, those perfect moments happen outside. They happen in the mountains. That might be true for a lot of us who live here in the, in the Pacific Northwest. Now, there was a few years back, I went hiking with my brother-in-law up in the Enchantments. It's uh, up in central Washington. It's actually just outside of Leavenworth, not far from where uh, Daryl Ness lives right now. Enchantments are, are a high granite plateau, like a playground, and it's, it's a chore to get to it. It's a lottery system, and we happen to have a ticket to get in that summer, and so we hiked in, and it's just this playground of lakes and peaks and waterfalls and streams, and the weather hadn't really been that good. It was kind of overcast. It was a little bit cloudy. It was raining on us a little bit, and then on Wednesday morning, we woke up, and it was pristine. The sky was crystalline. And so we climbed up to the top of little Annapurna. And uh, it's not a hard climb, but we got up to the top of it. And those words of Jared Manley Hopkins kept going through my head, glory be to God for dappled things. And it ends with that line, um, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change, praise him. And, uh, and we hiked the rest of the day and uh, sat by waterfalls for our meals. And that night we were camped next to a place called, lake, uh, called Perfection Lake, which is the perfect name, it's absolutely perfect lake. And we were camped next to it. And I remember staying up that night 
as long as I could because I did not want that day to end. But of course it did because perfect moments always do. And then we go on with the rest of our lives, right? We go back to the choices and the challenges and the uncertainties of all the other moments of our lives. Uh, you know, we experience transcendent beauty and then we have to figure out how we're gonna live in a marred and an unjust world. Uh, you get married, then you spend the rest of your life trying to figure out how you're gonna keep loving each other. Uh, sometimes it's not clear. Sometimes we're not sure what to do. Sometimes we're pretty sure what we should do. We still don't do it anyway. Uh, sometimes we lose hope, uh, we lose courage, we lose our way, uh, and, and life can become very imperfect. Well, in this story today from Luke chapter 9, especially that piece about the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, they experience a perfect moment. I mean, literally, it's a mountaintop experience, uh, and then they have to go back down to earth. But we're told that Jesus took them, took these three up to a mountain to pray, and then the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. And suddenly they see Moses and Elijah talking to him. They appeared in glory. Uh, it's a remarkable scene. And you can tell that Luke is sort of struggling to describe it because I mean, it's something that you cannot explain. Now, Peter, I mean, Peter does try to make sense of it. And he sort of makes a suggestion, kind of fumbling suggestion. Maybe we should stay. Maybe we should build sort of three, I don't know, kind of like warming huts. And Luke, you know, pretty dismissively just says, yeah, he didn't know what he was talking about. And then you get to the end of the story and a cloud comes, it overshadows them. And as, as, um, as Susan said earlier, they hear this voice, this voice from heaven that says, this is my son. Wow, that is awesome. It's a perfect moment. And, and you can tell that they never forget it because it shows up in all four of the gospels. It shows up in Matthew and Mark and John, as well as Luke. But in Luke's telling of this story, that, that, that line, this is my son, is really important because this question of the identity of Jesus is really important. What, what, what are they supposed to make of him? How are they supposed to understand his life? Now, just a few verses earlier before our reading today in chapter 9, um, after Jesus had fed the 5,000, he asks his disciples, he's alone with these friends, these followers, and he asks them, who do the people say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answer, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Some, some people think you're like a reboot of the prophet Elijah. Some think you're like one of the ancient prophets, maybe like Moses. And then he very pointedly asks them directly, who do you say that I am? And Peter, and I always imagine Peter in the scene as being like that kid, that nerdy kid in the front of the class who's always raising his hand, like calling me, calling me. I know the answer. I know the answer. Peter jumps up and he says, the Christ. You are the Messiah of God. And of course, Peter is right. But Peter and the others and all of us have a hard time understanding what that means. So that when Jesus goes on to tell them after that answer that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, when Jesus tells them that he's going to be rejected, he's going to be killed, Peter can't believe it. Peter can't understand it. Peter can't accept it. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, we're told that Peter took Jesus aside and he rebuked him for saying those things. And so there's this, this open question about the identity of Jesus in the early part of chapter 9 of Luke. And then this scene, this transfiguration, this perfect moment. They see the veil pulled back. They see Jesus. They see Elijah and Moses. You know, symptomatic 
of, of the law and the prophets. They see them in their glory. They hear this voice from heaven. And then the cloud dissipates. And then they come back down the mountain. They come back down to earth. They come back to the imperfect moments of their lives. And, and they still do not understand Jesus. And so right after this scene, we're told there's this story of a boy who's deeply troubled, a boy who's deeply disturbed. And it's clear that they don't understand the power of Jesus to bring healing. And later, just after our reading ends, there's an argument among the disciples about which one of them is going to be the greatest, which one of them is the greatest. I mean, they sound like a bunch of junior high boys at this point. No offense to the junior high boys who might be listening right here. But they argue about who's going to be greatest, as if they've never heard Jesus talk about giving your life away in service to others. They've never heard Jesus say anything about the first becoming the last and the greatest serving others. And then just after our reading, uh, just at the end of chapter 9, there's a scene where they go into a Samaritan village. And they're rebuffed by the people of the village. And they want Jesus to call down fire. They want Jesus to burn up everything and everyone in that village. And he just has to turn and walk away. And so in our reading today, verse uh, 45, Luke just flat out says, they did not understand. They could not perceive. At the transfiguration, in that perfect moment, they heard this voice from heaven say, this is my son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The son, Jesus. Jesus who would heal people, who would feed people, who would forgive people. Jesus who would challenge the religious and the cultural and the economic structures that excluded and, and impoverished and oppressed people. Jesus who would give his life in love for the sake of the whole world. The thing is that kind of love is hard to comprehend. That kind of perfect love is hard to understand. It's hard to believe. Love that forgives rather than settling scores. Love that prays for enemies rather than seeking to destroy them. Love that's merciful and just and compassionate and generous. Love that's tenacious, that's courageous, that's unyielding in its insistence to love everyone. Everyone, without exception, neighbors, strangers, enemies. That kind of love is hard to understand. The disciples had a hard time understanding it. The powers that be, the religious leaders, the political leaders in that moment, they refused to accept it. They're the ones that had Jesus killed. But it's only that kind of love that has the power to heal and to reconcile. It's only that kind of love that can overcome hatred and oppression. It's only that kind of love that can draw us, that can pull us, that can propel us to the promise of the beloved community for the winsome, uh, the timeless, the holy hope of, of the abundant life that Jesus makes possible for all people. In the story of the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John hear this voice from heaven. This is my son. It is a mountaintop experience. They see something that no one else has ever seen. It is a perfect moment, and they still have a hard time understanding it. And most of the time we do too. After whatever, you know, winsome, holy, perfect moments we've had, we go on with the rest of our imperfect lives. It can be hard to trust that love wins. Uh, pessimism, expediency, cynicism can all be pretty tempting. It's not easy figuring out how we're gonna live in a damaged, unjust, sometimes harsh world. Uh, decisions, challenges, uncertainties, it's not always clear what to do. 
it can be hard to comprehend the perfect love of God, the ways of God's love, the power, the scope of God's love. And so when that voice from heaven says to Peter and James and John, this is my son, that voice also says to them and to us still, listen to him. When we are uncertain, when we are weary, when we've lost our way, listen. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Listen to the wisdom of Jesus, who teaches us what love can look like so that we don't lower our sight, so that we don't settle for a lesser version of life together. Listen to the stories of Jesus that challenge all of the conventional wisdom that we absorb just by virtue of growing up in this particular time, in this particular culture. The stories that point us toward a deeper, uh, a truer, a more sustainable and just version of life. And listen to the words of forgiveness that promise grace when we failed, when we failed others, when we failed ourselves, we failed to be the person we want to be. Words that promise the hope of a fresh start. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus because there are plenty of other voices calling for our attention. There are plenty of other voices claiming our allegiance. There are plenty of other voices that will carry us toward other futures. And even within the church, we can see what happens when we aren't listening to Jesus. And I know this probably deserves a sermon of its own. It might deserve a whole series of sermons. But it's been deeply distressing to see the impact of Christian nationalism in this country. You know, Christian nationalism has always been part of the story of, of America. Um, the early settlers, the pilgrims. They, the colonialists, they understood the United States as a city set on a hill. The United States has often understood itself to have a special relationship to God. It's often understood itself to be exceptional, to be different, to, frankly, to be better than other countries. But that, that perversion of the relationship, the right relationship of God and country, uh, came to a horrifying climax in the attack on the U.S. Capitol on, on January 6th. We all saw it. We've all read about it. On the way to that insurrection, for example, there was a group of Proud Boys, a far-right group, that stopped for a prayer service. There were signs in that crowd. There was one sign that said, uh, Proud, Amer Proud American Christian. And under it was the, the, the symbol, the Christian symbol of the fish, the ichthus, painted in the colors of the American flag. One of the people who charged the Capitol that day was a florist from Texas. And she, uh, she posted a video on Facebook. And in that video, she finished by saying, to me, God and country are tied. To me, they're one and the same. We were founded as a Christian country. And we see how far we've come from that. We're a godly country and we're founded on godly principles. And if we don't have our country, nothing else matters. And this God-fearing woman joined a violent insurrection that left five people dead. See, the thing about Christian nationalism is that it appeals to Scripture but not to Jesus. Andrew Whitehead wrote a book called Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. And in it, he writes, Christian nationalism really tends to draw on an Old Testament narrative, a kind of blood purity and violence where the Christian nation needs to be defended against the outsiders. Now, we all know that anyone can make the Bible say whatever they want, but it's striking that that misguided reading of scripture has nothing to do with Jesus. And so hear that voice still calling to us, listen to Jesus. Doesn't mean we're always gonna understand, 
But that's the starting point. Listen to Jesus. Now, parenthetically, let me just say, if you want to learn more about um, Christian nationalism, and particularly the more violent extremes of Christian nationalism, there's a good article that came out uh, on Politico uh, this week by Zach Stan. It's called It's Time to Talk About Violent Christian Extremism. And in it, it features a, an interview with a woman named Elizabeth Newman. She grew up in the evangelical world that, frankly, many of us grew up in. Uh, later, she became a leading official at the Department of Homeland Security, where they had eyes and ears, especially on the more violent end of Christian uh, nationalism. But I recommend that article. You can find it. Just uh, Google the title again. It's time to talk about violent Christian extremism. It's on the political website uh, by uh, Zach Stanton. But whether it's political involvement or personal moments of our lives, the voice still calls to us, listen to Jesus and listen for Jesus. Listen with your heart. Listen with your soul. Listen, listen in the way that you listen when you're expecting someone you love. Listen in the way that you listen when, when you're expecting your teenager home and it's getting late on a Friday night. Uh, listen in the way you listen when you're expecting your spouse or your partner home after they've been away on a business trip, back when we used to go on those kind of things. Or even listen in the way you listen when you're coming home and you come up the stairs to your house or your apartment or your condo and you're expecting your dog to come and greet you at the door. Listen in that way. Listen with your heart. With your, that's, see, that's a different kind of listening. It's one thing for us to listen to Jesus, and that's terrifically important, right? But it can happen, and I don't know if Mennonites are more susceptible to this or not, but it can happen that we can reduce faith to listening to the ethical demands of Jesus. We can reduce faith to listening to what Jesus tells us to do, and that's not bad. In fact, it's good. It's important. It's necessary. But if that's the only way that we listen, uh, in my experience, it can be really hard to keep up with Jesus. There are too many needs. There are too many people. There is too much wrong. There's too much to do. I mean, I'm a religious professional. I'm paid to be religious. And, and I don't have enough compassion in me on my own to follow Jesus. I don't have enough mercy in me. I don't have enough strength or courage. I know I don't have enough patience and I usually don't have enough wisdom in me on my own to keep up with Jesus. And when that happens, we can get overwhelmed. We can get burned out. When that happens, I know I start to get pretty judgmental. I get pretty short. I get pretty critical. I tend towards cynicism. Uh, or else we just pull back and we pull in. We disengage. We can give up. We can get apathetic. Listen to Jesus and listen for Jesus. Listen for the spirit of Jesus who brings comfort and renewed strength and peace. Listen for Jesus when you're weary, when you're carrying heavy burdens. Listen for Jesus who promises rest for our souls. When you've failed, when you've come up short, when you've been deceptive, when you've hurt someone you've loved, when you have sinned by what you've done or by what you've left undone, listen for the gracious words of forgiveness. And when you get settled, when you get too comfortable, listen for those promptings, listen for those challenging words that summon us to new endeavors. Listen for Jesus. Listen with your heart. Listen with your soul. In the perfect moments of life, listen. 
and even more so in the imperfect moments of life, listen and keep listening so that we are drawn more and more toward Jesus, toward his way, toward his truth, toward the kind of life together that Jesus promises and that Jesus makes possible. May it be so.